Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday july 26 2013 this week episode 293 comes to you from studio d in central city pennsylvania my name is radio joe hughes and joining me in the studio at the controls is our engineer roxy v val bender happy friday hi everyone Joining us from the McKees Rock Studio C is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, great to be here, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Joining us later will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil from his Carnegie home. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question and interview with Dr. Allison Bales. Uh, he's with the Energy Vanguard Group. We're going to talk energy efficiency and IEQ. Are they compatible or not? talk a little bit more about that as we get to that segment first we've got to thank our marquee sponsors john don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop visit them at www.johndon.com clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at clean c-l-e-a-n-f-a-x.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. Of course, you can also stream our shows directly from the website, iaqradio.com, or download shows by going to the link that says Go to Show, right-click on the Download button, save it to your favorite MP3 player. And, of course, you can get the shows from iTunes. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits for ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out the registration. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And don't forget to check out our summer break event at Hidden Valley. That'll be August 21st through the 23rd. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krozowski, Concast Metal Products, for being first to identify the term nanoparticles 
which is used to refer to microscopic particles with at least one dimension less than 100 nanometers. The IEQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, July 26, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the metric measurement unit of pressure, which serves as the base standard international unit of pressure named for a French mathematician, physicist, and philosopher. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Allison Bales. Dr. Bales has a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Florida. He started down the path of academia, but uh, decided along the way to make a I guess a right-hand turn, and uh, built his own home in about 2001. He'd also worked with one of his uh, colleagues at the university on some green building and found that that was a a great match for his degree. He uh, started doing some actual uh, energy rating back in the early days, started his own company for a while, and then ended up at the South Face Energy Institute, which is one of the premier energy efficiency and green uh, building organizations in the country. After gaining some more experience there, he decided to go back into his own business and started the Energy Vanguard Group and also has a popular blog called the, uh, on the same group, the Energy Vanguard Blog. We've got some music for Dr. Bales. That's a beautiful one. All right, we've got an answer, too. Somebody actually beat out Andy today. Actually, two people. Hard to believe. All right, let's get Dr. Bales on the line. Dr. Bales, do we have you? Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, and um, I know you were a little under the weather, so let me know if you have to go get a drink or anything like that. We'll bring Dr. Wow in. We've, okay, well, I'm, I'm feeling much better than I was this morning, and my, my throat seems to be holding up, so I think I'll be able to make it through. Great. Now, you started with a Ph.D. in physics. I mean, did you do some, some teaching at that time as well? I did, yes. I was um, teaching at the college level for six years before I um, got into this field, and two of those years were actually up in your neck of the woods. I was at Haverford College in the Philadelphia area. Oh, Okay. Yeah, and that's were you doing physics, teaching physics, or yes, <clears throat> yep, physics. I'm curious. You know, you, you, I saw in your bio that you went from teaching and and working in academia to building your own home, and that kind of was the jump start into this current career. What what kind of made you think? You know, hey, this physics thing is nice, but maybe I could put it to better use in helping people with homes and buildings. Well. It's, um, I, I guess in graduate school, I learned that I was uh, not really as smart as I thought I was. 
when for the first time in my life, I was in the bottom half of my class. <laughs> that was uh, an interesting experience because there, there, I found that there are a lot of people who are smarter than I am in physics. And also, my my big interest in um, a physics career was was teaching. Uh, you know, I wasn't super interested in the, the really um, nitty-gritty details of the physics that you have to do at that level. But I was really interested in teaching. And the way the uh, higher education system in this country is going, though, every every institution wants to be a Carnegie One institution doing high-level research, and you have to bring in grants and publish papers and um and I found also while I was teaching in Georgia, after the two years at Haverford College, I came to Georgia. I started building a house, and I really fell in love with that. And um, that's what led me where I am. I'm curious when you, I know you're involved with blogging and in the energy efficiency world, and I, I assume you kind of keep up on the indoor air quality world, maybe even disaster restoration. There are a lot of these groups out there, LinkedIn, etc. And I see you, you post on LinkedIn in the building science group. What are your just your general impression of the level of knowledge about the physics behind buildings, building science? And if you're familiar with indoor air quality and disaster restoration, I'd kind of be curious on your thoughts on are we actually making good use of the physics that we're that, that is out there that's available? I, I think we are um, getting better. Okay. <laughs> it's, there's, there's still a long way to go because I, I go out and I see houses all the time and I talk with builders and trade contractors and and there are some who are incredibly knowledgeable. There are some people working in the field every day who know more than I do. Um, well, actually, there's a lot of people who know more about more than I do about their trades. But uh, and some of them are also very good at the building science side of it, and have done a lot of studying and have been working on it for years. And so it, it's definitely getting better. There's still a long way to go. I'm curious. Do you see a lot of uh, drawings, I guess, from architects and mechanical engineers, and I'm um, just kind of curious what your your overall opinion is as to how much that's changing uh, with some of the new building science things that people are aware of. Do you see that uh, changing, and and especially with respect to the fact that we now have tighter buildings and are building tighter buildings, are are we making the changes as quickly in the mechanical systems that go into these buildings as we are in tightening up the envelope? No, the, the, the HVAC side of things is lagging, in my opinion. The, um, we've made incredible strides in better building enclosures with, with more and better installed insulation and tighter um, enclosures for air leakage and what's we just had a webinar yesterday on many split heat pumps and one of the things we talked about there is dehumidification because with all these improvements we've made in building enclosures we've we've cut the sensible loads down more than the latent loads and in humid climates like we have here in the southeast we're running into trouble sometimes where houses that um, did not need supplemental dehumidification before, 
when um, when you build them with a better building enclosure, you suddenly need some supplemental dehumidification sometimes, and especially when you go to the extremes like passive house. And you know, I'm, I want to go into this in a little bit later, but um, that kind of brings up in my mind the current debate about the ASHRAE 62.2 standard and the amount of outdoor air being brought in under that new standard. Are you, just kind of as a general overview of that, are you seeing problems with that, or is that kind of too new to where we get to that point? No, there, there are definitely problems with that. We've, we've seen houses that have part load humidity problems because they're bringing in a lot of outdoor air. And the, the most popular system in the southeast for ventilation is a positive pressure system where they use an air cycler and they bring in outdoor air. It's on the controller, the air cycler controller, and dump it into the return. And when the system is not running, it's just distributed through the house. And when the system is running, it's running across the coil. And so in the cooling season, it gets dehumidified. But we're we're seeing some cases where there are indoor moisture problems because of the extra ventilation air. I see. Let me go. Uh, and, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say it's not. Uh, I just uh, interviewed Joe Siebert last week and talked about positive pressure systems and and as we said in that interview and he emphasized the fault there is not the problem with the positive pressure ventilation because an air cycler can do a great job. Um, the problem is overventilating, and, and and even if you're not overventilating, if you're still having the humidification pro- or moisture problems, high humidity, then you may need supplemental dehumidification. And there's a, a great new report that Armin Rudd uh, wrote. Well, Armin Rudd was the lead investigator on it about supplemental dehumidification in humid climates, and it's available through ASHRAE. On supplemental dehumidification, I have to. See if we can't get him on the show, actually. That would be great. All right, let me go over to the Z-Man here and, and see where he'd like to take this and get him. let him get a word in edgewise. Cliff? Well, I think that, you know, we're going to be talking, I think, a lot about, you know, efficiencies, and, and I'd really appreciate if you could, you know, kind of decode some of the HERS lingo uh, for the listeners so that they're familiar with the various acronyms. Maybe we okay. should start with uh, what, what is HERS, Cliff? What do you think? Yep, that, that's right. exactly what I was going to start. So HERS, H-E-R-S, is Home Energy Rating System. And that is it's an energy rating standard that is um, overseen by ResNet, R-E-S-N-E-T, which is Residential Energy Services Network. ResNet is a nonprofit organization that that writes the standards for home energy ratings and accredits training providers and rating providers and promotes the industry. And the, so a home energy rating gives you a number of things. And, and one of the most important numbers that comes out of there is called the HERS index. And you're seeing this more and more because a lot of builders are, are getting their homes rated, new homes, and promoting the HERS index. And for programs like Energy Star New Homes, the, the builder has to get a home energy rating done, and the HERS index has to meet the target for that house. 
So the, the HERS index, I'll briefly tell you what that is, it's, um, it's a number, and the benchmark for that number is 100. So if you rate a house and it gets a HERS index of 100, that means that it uses the same amount of energy as if that house had been built to the 2004 Energy Code, IECC, International Energy Conservation Code. Um, so that's, I guess, a, the quick decoding of HERS and the others. There's more to it than that, but okay, that's thank you. the basics. And with Why that, is that 74 Energy Code important? Um, 2004. That, that's just when um, when ResNet revamped the the standards that the energy modeling is based on. They picked that point because they introduced that that new standard in 2006. So they used the numbers from the 2004 IECC, which was an update, not the full release. So it's basically the same as the 2006 IECC. But that's just that's just the the reference point. And yes, we're in 2013 now. We've since then we've had the 2009 and the 2012 IECCs introduced, but the the HERS index isn't going to change that benchmark point because if you do that, every time you change that reference point, now you can't compare the houses that were rated before that change to the houses that were rated afterwards. Okay. So the, the meaning of the HERS index changes if you change the reference point. Gotcha. So can a can a home have a score, I guess, higher than a hundred? Oh yeah, yeah. Existing homes often have an index higher than a hundred, and um, I've seen I've, I've seen homes over two hundred actually. So, and let me ask if that would correlate to essentially twice as bad as the two thousand four benchmark. That's. That's, yeah, um, I didn't mention that part. But, yes, each point on that index scale is 1% in efficiency gain or um, or reduction. I see. So a uh, person at 200, theoretically anyway, according to the modeling, is using twice as much energy as the um, same home built to the 2004 energy code. Got it. And so what's the best home you've tested right on the HERS scale or HERS index? Well, let's see. We are um, a HERS provider to independent raters. We don't do ratings ourselves because we don't compete against our raters. But of the ratings that have gone through our providership, we had a net zero house in the Memphis area that came in at negative two. I think that's our lowest one so far. Okay. And, and let me get, Make sure I understand. So that home is using or is is producing more energy than it's using, right? Okay, okay, interesting. Right. So, so yeah, net zero means according to the Hertz index, if you have a, a Hertz index of zero, that means that it's producing exactly as much energy over the course of a year as it's using, and the energy production is supposed to be on site. So solar panels on the house or wind turbines in the yard or something like that. You know, I noticed you have a, a, a pretty lengthy background in solar. And, and one of the, since you mentioned it now, I'd like to kind of touch on that just for a moment. Um, is solar energy to the point where it can compete with fossil fuels, fossil fuels, excuse me, um, financially speaking? I mean, is it, is it without 
the tax credits, et cetera, is it anywhere near being comp- competitive with fossil fuels? Well, um, yeah, and, and it depends on on the particular situation. But it, if you're building a net zero house and you've got, it, it depends on the incentives, but if you've got some good incentives to help subsidize the the solar that you put on the house, then yeah, it, it makes perfect sense and can compete. Um, but it requires a lot of extra work. Now, there are, <clears throat> I think, was it Meritage Homes, or, or there's some big builder that is giving buyers the option of getting net zero homes. So that makes it a lot easier for the homeowner. But yeah, I think uh, when you look at the cost effectiveness um, in net zero homes, it, it certainly does make sense in some cases. Cliff, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know if you had a follow-up to the hair, the hers question, and the, the kind of the background. I kind of jumped to solar. I wanted to make sure you had covered what you wanted to there. No, no. I, I think I'm uh, I'm okay on that. Um, I, I think what I'd like to do is probably talk about um, you know the ventilation debate because I think it's at some point we really need to get into that. And it, can we, why don't we hold that until the second half, and let me finish okay. with a couple of um, kind of background questions here. But also, you know, I want to tie it into indoor air quality a little bit more. I'm curious, um, you teach energy raters, uh, Dr. Bales, I, I believe, and I know you work with the ResNet guys, etc. How much education do energy raters get on indoor air quality issues? Well, uh, not a whole lot. There's... There's a little bit about that in the, um, in the HERS rater test that they have to take, but it's it's not a whole lot. It's, it's, and it basically comes down to moisture management, understanding moisture management. Beyond that, there's, there's not much there. I see. And, and do you think that's something that is a weakness in the in the programs and it's something that we should focus on more, or do you think that the program has built-in checks, I guess, for lack of a better word, that ensure that when we tighten up these homes and buildings, um, and I'm talking more about, you know, existing buildings as well, which I know hers is not mm-hmm. based on that, I don't believe, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do you feel like it's built into the system so people won't essentially screw up indoor air quality, or is it something that we probably should pay a little more attention to? Well, um, let me... Let me say that indoor air quality per se doesn't get a lot of emphasis, but health and safety does. And there's huge emphasis on combustion safety in the um, not yet in the HERS rating process and the HERS rater education, but starting I believe next year, the um, all new raters are going to have to get certified in the combustion safety aspect as well. And of course, that's a, a big part of BPI's protocol and standards is combustion safety and the health and safety issues, understanding what they're doing in the house and, and what things they could do that could make things worse. And so and, the health and safety side of it is, is big though. Indoor air quality, indoor and environmental quality don't get isolated um, and taught separately so much. Okay. And just to clarify for our listeners, BPI, Building Performance Institute, I believe that is. 
Yes, it is. Yeah. <clears throat> DPI, the, the, the two big organizations with standards and training protocols for energy auditing and energy rating are ResNet, which has the HERS system, and BPI, which trains energy auditors. And BPI's big focus is existing homes. And do they train people to, I guess that was my other question, the HERS index, can that be applied to existing homes? Is it applied to existing homes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. It's it's mostly done for new homes because in – in a lot of cases, it doesn't make sense to do full energy modeling on an existing home when you can go in and go through an energy audit protocol and you know, do your blower door testing and depth leakage testing if necessary and inspect the insulation and the, the building enclosure and get all the information you really need for an existing home. Now, existing homes do get ratings sometimes when programs require it or if somebody is buying or refinancing a house with an energy efficient mortgage which requires the rating i see now let me let me ask a quick question on the on the method itself i I, i've always been confused about this and i've got an expert on here so let me ask this question essentially you mentioned a blower door and a blower door test so that's where for those that aren't terribly familiar with it i can quickly say we're going to put a a blower a big blower a fan essentially into the door one of the doors and suck air out and depressurize the home to negative 50 pascals which is i guess about uh, an inch of water no i'm sorry a tenth of an inch of water uh, water gauge for those of you familiar with that so about 0.1 50 pascals we're, we're sucking it down I'm, i've always been curious where does that number come from are we trying to simulate and in nature, you know, when a home, say, for instance, has a 40-mile-an-hour wind against the side of it, is it based on something like that, or is it just something <laughs> well, that's pulled out of nowhere? It's an interesting, interesting story. I was talking to Joe Stiebrick earlier this year, and he told me a little bit of the, the history behind that because he's been around doing this since the 70s, and he knows all the people in Canada who were doing this back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And... He said that the the reason that we test homes at 50 pascals is because we could not get to 75, which was the commercial standard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he learned that from, oh, what's the guy's name? He told me who it was, and I've got it somewhere, but I can't remember who it was. But anyway, and then he went further and he found that the reason they test commercial buildings at 75 is because they couldn't get them to 100. So. Some of these numbers are kind of arbitrary, but you can learn a lot. At 50 pascals for homes, 75 pascals for commercial buildings, that that gives you a lot of information about um, the uh, how leaky the, the building is with the blower door running. I just always wondered because it seems like, you know, that's the foundational number what you get from your blower door test is that accurate to say i mean with with a lot of these rating systems yeah the 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 blower door number is an important number it tells you how good a job you did with your air sealing and so for for new homes when you're trying to build a tight house you're trying to come in at a certain number and ACH 50, air changes per hour at 50 pascals, is the most common number that people use to talk about blow-door results. The energy codes 
um, have started requiring blower door tests. The you know, since early 2011 or mid 2011 in Georgia, we have required all new homes to get a blower door test and a duct leakage test to have ducts outside the enclosure. And our number here in Georgia under that code is seven ACH fifty. Seven air changes uh, per hour at fifty. Okay. Seven seven yeah. with the blow door running, air all the air in the house moves through the blow door uh, exchanges seven times. Okay, so and, and that's, for... that's been our benchmark. And that's that's um that, that's not tremendously tight because the passive house program requires any home certified under that program to come in at 0.6 ACH 50, 0.6 instead of seven. So more than 10 times better, tighter. Now, I'm just making a note here because I, I thought that was very interesting. I also wanted to ask you if you could relate to our listeners. You built a home in 2001 through 2003, I believe it was, and you yep. were trying to make it a green and energy efficient home. What was your blower door test on that one? It was 1.7 ACH 50. 1.7. That, that's a pretty good number. It, it would easily meet the Georgia Energy Code now and wouldn't quite meet passive house. But if I were building that house again, I, I could easily get it to passive house, I think. I, I built the house out of structural insulated panels, so that made the, all the above-grade walls and the, the roof very tight. We did a pretty good, pretty good job sealing all that, and the um, I, I think a lot of the leakage was at the band joist, which I tried to seal, but you know, I've never I'd never even seen or done a blower door test when I built that house, and I had never built anything bigger than a bookcase either, so <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, quite an undertaking. So you were pretty happy with 1.7, and once you figured out that there was a blower door test out there and that uh, you were going to have it done. I yep. got I yeah, was... well, I did it myself because right after I, I finished the house and moved into it, I took the home energy radar class at South Face and, and and the day after the day the class ended, I borrowed their blower door and got the tester and took it out to the house and tested it. That's great. That's great. We are at our halftime point, Doctor Bales, and what I'd like to do is stop and thank our sponsors first, and then. We knew you were a little um, under the weather and the throat might not hold up, so I brought a gentleman on by the name of Glenn Fellman. And Glenn is going to give us a little update on um, Indoor Environment Connections, which has been uh, not around here for the last six months or so, and uh, we're happy to find out that it is um, coming back. We're back very recently here. So we're going to take a break, thank our sponsors. We're going to have our halftime with Glenn Fellman. And then we'll be back for the second half of our interview with Dr. Allison Bales. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. 
And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's kind of let's get Glenn Fellman on the line here. I think we've got a little intro for Glenn. Get me sued. <laughs> Glenn, do we have you on the line? I am on the line. Right, Thank you Glenn. for that wonderful intro. Hey, always always good to have you back. It's been a while. What's new, Glenn? Uh, we got some great new stuff. Um, first of all, I want to say uh, thanks for having me on the show, and it's, it's good to be back here. Uh, Indoor Environment Connections newspaper, uh, which is a sponsor of your show, is no longer a newspaper. It is now a website. Last year, we uh, concluded our 13th year of successful publishing, uh, successful from the standpoint of having a very loyal group of readers who loved our publication, uh, not so successful uh, like so many other newspapers and publications over the last five years, in able, uh, being able to generate the revenue necessary to print and mail 25,000 uh, or more newspapers every month. So we did some regrouping. We decided to, we wanted to come up with a, a better model, uh, be able to get news out more efficiently and get it out to more people. If uh, your listeners will make their way, not during the show, of course, but afterwards, to ieconnections.com, they will find a very different website there than what they've ever seen before. Uh, we have now a website that delivers news on a daily basis, it has all of the great features and content that our readers came to know and love in the printed publication. We've got technical articles, we've got conference reports, we've got editorials, we've got association watch, and we've got news going up every single day. There's at least one or two really uh, uh, hard-hitting uh, news articles. Uh, these things are, are written by our staff. They're not uh, press releases or other things that you find on the Internet from uh, various sources. Uh, real good news. So for those of you in the, uh, in the listening audience who spend their day kind of picking around uh, social media or uh, various things and picking things up and getting bits and pieces, now you can stop by Indoor Environment Connections or ieconnections.com uh, once a day or every couple of days and, and read up on all the headlines in one place. I see you still have uh, Ask Ask Dr. Burge, too. That's, that was always a popular one, I believe. It always was, and, and, and it still is. Dr. Burge is on there. Uh, she uh, contributed a technical article uh, that we've posted. Uh, also, we have one from uh, Cassidy Kuchenbacher, who's been uh, a prolific writer for us on determining spore trap sampling. 
But, you know, I, I was struck today by how much the content of the site that we've put up uh, just in the last couple weeks, in fact, correlates to, to what you're talking about today. Uh, I know you're going to talk about ventilation in the second half. Uh, we just put up a news article uh, uh, today, I believe it was, or maybe it was last night, uh, about studies that find that cooking with gas, you know, gas stove, is a major contributor to poor indoor air quality, much more so than people knew it was a problem before, but now uh, research is really coming together and, and, and showing just how dangerous it can be. Uh, with uh, Cooking with gas indoors sometimes can raise your levels of indoor pollution higher than it would be on a bad smog day in Los Angeles. So it's a great article, and like I say, dovetails right into the conversation you're having. Some of the other things that struck me just from your conversation, we were talking a lot about ResNet. Uh, just this week, uh, the Air Conditioning Contractors of America and ResNet put out a big announcement that they're teaming up to advance home energy performance. So you've got the air conditioning contractors and the energy raiders now working hand-in-hand, hand, and obviously air conditioning plays a huge role in, in, in energy consumption in homes. We also uh, had an article that went up just a couple days ago about a new course from ASHRAE on commercial building energy audits. It's coming out this fall through the ASHRAE online uh, course series. And it just is, is interesting and, and really coincidental that your guest today is touching on so many topics that we have um, covered in just the recent days. Some of the other headlines that we've um, you know, uh, put up that we've been very uh, proud of and, and I think your, your listeners will really find interesting, uh, good indoor air quality in California schools results in fewer absences. There's new studies out, uh, work that's been done by uh, some of the labs in the industry uh, on a kind of pro bono basis with counties in California, and they're, they're really showing how uh, the difference between good and, and bad indoor air quality affects uh, absenteeism among students. There was a great uh, a report that came out uh, this past week about federal, a federal task force uh, convened by President Obama after Superstorm Sandy uh, that would talk about how funding is going to be directed to storm rebuilding efforts. Uh, anybody on the East Coast or doing work on the East Coast in the, those storm-ravaged areas would be interested in that. Uh, U.S. Green Building Council, it put out a state-by-state -state report uh, just recently uh, on how each state ranks in its green building efforts relative to LEED certification. It's got a good piece on that. IICRC's exam, I think you would know about this, Joe, has been accepted for mold remediation licensure in Florida. Yep. Uh, EPA is continuing to crack down on lead paint. Uh, we got uh, uh, lawsuits all over the place on drywall. Now we've got a Florida couple suing someone over domestic drywall that they say contains the same type of problems that the Chinese drywall uh, had, uh, you know, uh, we afflicting people over the last two years. Sure. Just a bunch of great information at ieconnections.com. Plus, you've got um, the ability to uh, share information with social media feeds. You can comment on articles. And you can submit materials. You can submit events. If you've got upcoming training courses that you want people to know about, if you've got news uh, about your company that you want people to know about, there's a submit section where you can put those things in. It's a really dynamic site, and we're very, very excited about it. So IE Connections is no longer the newspaper for the IEQ industry. We are the website for the IEQ industry. What? And 
very proud of that. Great to have you back, and great to have IE Connections back. I've I've gone through the site. It looks looks great, and um, in fact, we're going to post an event when we get done. I just sent a note over here to Val. Anyway, um, I, you know, your conversation along with um, with our discussion here with Dr. Bales. Do we have him back on the line, Val? Can you unmute Dr. Bales? Maybe I'll keep you on for just a moment, Glenn, because I got a text question in while you were doing that, and it was, where does the ACCA, Air Conditioning Contractors of America, and the ResNet collaboration, um, where does that leave Building Performance Institute? Are they a part of that? Uh, I would I would suspect that they are distinctly not. Um, there's You can read about this in a few different places on the Internet. We, don't, we haven't covered it in IE Connections, but... Uh, there's been sort of an ongoing, um, I don't know if I call it a dispute necessarily, but there's been sort of an ongoing issue with uh, the Building Performance Institute and their standards. Uh, BPI has uh, set standards. They are an ANSI-accredited standards development organization. Uh, but there's been some controversy about the um, methods by which, uh, the procedures by which they've gone about setting their standards, also, uh, whether their standards uh, contradict and or conflict with other American national standards created by the Air Conditioning Contractors Association, ASHRAE, uh, and, and potentially others. So I don't think that there's a, um, a, uh, a, a real cooperative uh, effort going on between ResNet, ACCA, uh, and BPI, although I know they are, you know, uh, uh, common cousins, if you will, and there's, there's overlap in what they do. Yeah, it sounds like, um, Dr. Bales, you, you work with both groups. They seem to play okay. Two of those three. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a, a long article about this. I interviewed several people. I interviewed um, somebody from ACCA and from ICT, and I talked to people at DPI and wrote an article about this. Um, probably in March or April, because I, I first heard about um, and, and at the ResNet conference this year in uh, late February, I found out that ACTA and 12 other organizations, including ICC, the International Code Council, the um, AHRI, and a whole um, soup of acronyms and initials, were appealing to ANSI to revoke BPI's accreditation as a standards development organization, which was an interesting move. Hmm. It didn't go anywhere, but um, I, I talked to several people involved and wrote an article about it and how I um, saw it. Uh, but you can you can read that there. It's, yeah, BPI and ResNet have, have tried to work together on some things, and, and they kind of exist in the same sphere, but do slightly different things, mostly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and ResNet and ACCA have teamed up uh, more than once. Um, This past year, the ResNet conference was combined with the the ACA conference and IAQA conference in Orlando. And Glenn is the executive director of IAQA, who was just on here. Okay. And it was a good conference. I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the ResNet and uh, ACA and IAQA trio uh, worked real well together, and I think we can look forward, uh, possibly not not next year and possibly not the following year, but after that I think you're going to see a return to that grouping and maybe a few more added as well. 
Yeah, I, I talked to Wes Davis at the end of that conference and asked him if they were going to do it again, and he said they they really want to do it again. They just didn't um, move quick enough for ResNet for next year, but they definitely want to do it again. And I agree with you. I, I think it was great to have all three of those groups together. And then we could go to, to sessions from any of the three conferences. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me let me keep rolling here on the another bit of a debate um ventilation let's let's talk a little ventilation cliff i know you wanted to get into this do you want me to start it off or do you want to go ahead no um go ahead Jeff. all right we've got an ashray 62 point and i think i have this wrong in my notes ashray 62.2 is on ventilation in residential and i guess low-rise commercial i don't know the exact but you can fix us on that dr bales you know um standard that's been revised here recently i believe and and there's been a bit of a, a controversy and a bit of a debate between the ashray committee folks and the folks at the building science corporation and i know you've been following this and they've actually come out with their own version of a 62.2 standard and maybe what i could do is ask dr bells if you would kind of frame if, if first if i got this right and secondly, if you could kind of give our listeners some kind of an overview on, on what the issue is and what the what the concerns are. Yeah, the um, ASHRAE 62.2 is, <clears throat> is sort of based on 0.35 air changes per hour without a blower door running. That's the, the ventilation rate that they're targeting, though it's not mentioned in the standard. And the 1989 version of the standard, that's what they, that was the target. Uh, well, that was one way to get there, 0.35 ACH. And so the the rates now are sort of based on that, but it's based on square footage of the condition floor area and the number of bedrooms. Up until two, 2010, um, there was automatically uh, given credit for infiltration. And so the, the 2010 version of ASHRAE 62.2, which is the standard for low-rise residential, and the um, so the was one CFM for every hundred square feet of condition floor area plus 7.5 CFM of ventilation air for each bedroom for the number of people, which is defined as the number of bedrooms plus one. Not the actual number of people, but number of bedrooms plus one times 7.5. So under 2010, a three-bedroom, 2,500-square-foot house would need 55 CFM, according to ASHRAE 62.2. In the 2013 version, they took away that automatic infiltration credit and changed the one CFM per 100 square feet to three CFM per 100 square feet. And Joe Seabrick hit the roof. Um, as you might expect, he he thinks that the the uh, even the old standards overventilated sometimes, and and people need the occupants need to have control of the systems, and and what he said they have been doing with systems they designed is until uh, recently they've been designing to the ASHRAE 62.2 2010 version, and um, actually designing it at about 150% total, but then commissioning at 50 to 60% of that. So 
they put in more total capacity than Asheville 62 and commission it so that it's running at about half the rate of 62 And they're finding that that seems to, to work pretty well. It doesn't overventilate. It doesn't cause comfort problems in cold climates, and it doesn't cause the part load moisture problems in human climates. So they, uh, with the 2013 version of 62.2, going to three CFM per hundred square feet. And uh, so now that three bedroom, 2,500 square foot house that would require 55 CFM under the 2010 version now would require 105 CFM, hmm. which is quite a lot. <laughs> hmm. So Building Size Corporation is coming out with their own standard. They're going to release it uh, in about a week and a half at Building Science Summer Camp, the Westford Symposium on Building Science. And it's it's basically the same numbers as the 2010 version of 62.2. So it's one CFM per 100 square feet plus seven and a half CFM per person or number of bedrooms plus one. But you get um, you get penalized if the system is not balanced which means if, if you're not putting in an ERV or HRV, if you're putting in, if you're using exhaust-only ventilation or supply-only ventilation, so you get a positive pressure or negative pressure in the house, okay. you get you have to put in more ventilation in that case. If the ventilation air is not distributed to the house, you, you get penalized again and you have to put in more ventilation air. So basically, if you do the, what the way they think is right, you put in a system that is balanced, that's bringing in air and exhausting air at the same time, so you're not changing the pressures in the house, and get, the air gets distributed through the house, and it gets mixed in the house, then you get to put in that 55 CFM system instead of 105 CFM. So 55 instead of 105. Now, you're an energy guy, okay? Yep. All this ventilation costs money. Am I, yes, it does. Is that accurate? Okay. <laughs> now, yep. we're doing a lot of ventilation, and it's costing us some money. We've got to, so we're tightening up the buildings to the point where we have to bring in ventilation air, where we didn't in the past. Most residential homes built, you know, 20 years ago, or 30, or 40, or 50, or 100 years ago had no outdoor air. In general, I mean, a generalization. Mm -hmm. And as we tighten up the envelope or the enclosure, depending on who you're talking to, um, we need to bring in more outdoor air and we need to do it sensibly. But are we kind of, I don't know, we're kind of um, hurting ourselves in a way by tightening up in some ways. But I think I know the answer to this, but just let me ask, how do we justify this tightening up when it adds to the need for more ventilation? That's a, that's a common question and a very easy one to answer. If you are relying on infiltration to bring outside air into your house, a lot of that infiltration is coming from places where you don't want to be getting air for your house. It's coming from the garage. With, with the car exhaust and the gasoline fumes and the paint fumes and all the stuff that's out there. It's coming from the moldy crawl space because a lot of houses sit on um, vented crawl spaces and in humid climates, they're, they're very musty and nasty and have dead possums in them and things like that. And it's coming from the attic where it's getting sucked through dirty insulation and dead squirrels. So 
you don't want to rely on ventilation air coming through random leaks in your building enclosure. You want it to come in through a known location where it's going to pull in the best possible outside air at that location. Okay. I I knew the answer. I just wanted to make sure I was right and that yeah. um, we got it out to our listeners because I think that's important when we discuss indoor air quality. Um, it's been a concern of mine. Yeah. My blower door test, for instance, you're, you're essentially trying to pull air in from all of those locations during the blower door test. Is that kind of accurate to say? That's right. That's right. You're putting a, a pressure difference of 50 pascals across the building enclosure. And so wherever there's a hole, you're going to get air coming in. All right. Now, we're, we're now designing and putting in ventilation intentionally to make up for the tightness of the building and to make sure that we have ventilation. I mean, we need ventilation. Now, two of the common the I don't know units used are heat recovery ventilators and energy recovery ventilators and I've got a text question from a listener because you're the guy on this we want to ask you um, the HRV versus ERV in mixed climates um, we I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that um, where do you draw the line between having an HRV versus an ERV well um H, some people say ERVs everywhere, and Henry Gifford is, is one of those people. He says you just you need to put an ERV everywhere, in cold climate, hot climate, um, and it, but a, a lot of people say HRVs in cold climates and ERVs when you're in a mixed or warm climate. Now, one thing that a lot of people get confused about is. They think that, well, because an ERV is exchanging moisture as well between the two air streams, it's going to help dehumidify your house. But it doesn't. Armand Rudd has a great study. I think I mentioned this earlier. Um, it just came out in the, for sale by ASHRAE. It came out earlier this year on supplemental dehumidification. And one of the things that they talk about in there is ventilation air and the effect that has. And one of their big conclusions in the executive summary is that ERVs do not um, help with dehumidification of the house. In fact, I pulled this quote out yesterday. Energy recovery ventilators provide little or no high humidity control benefit in hot humid climates. Since most hours with high humidity levels occur at mild conditions and indoor and outdoor conditions are similar, there is little humidity reduction provided by the ERV at that time. Also, in winter and hot humid climates, ERV operation has the disbenefit of keeping moisture inside the house at times when drier outside air might have helped reduce indoor high humidity. So a lot of people think that an ERV is going to help dry out your house, but it doesn't. And it, and it also can lead to problems if you connect it in uh, for your pulling air from the bathrooms. So um, you have to be careful with, with ERVs. Now, I've got a text here about removable cores. Can you just kind of go over that with our, our listeners? Do you, are you a fan or not, and why? Well, um, I'm not I'm not the, the best expert on ERVs and HRVs and the different types, okay. but the, um, an ERV, the way I understand it, an ERV with a removable core isn't so great at passing the, the moisture through as, um, as a desiccant wheel type system. So 
um, but in residential, most of the ERVs that I see do have the, the capillary core rather than the desiccant wheel. Now, I, I, I appreciate you, you know, taking a stab at it, but also clarifying that's not your, your area of expertise. So let me, let me go on to something that I think maybe I can just get a comment for you, uh, from you for, um, well, let me get this text. Is it, and we're going back to the is is energy efficiency compatible with good indoor air quality? Kind of, that was my my title I came up with, and I'm just curious if you could, you know, kind of give us a summary of your thoughts on that question. Uh, and my answer is yes, absolutely, it is compatible. But and, and in fact, you have to do the two together. Not only are they compatible, they're they're mandatory to do together because I think this is one of the big ways that we got in trouble in the 70s when we started tightening up houses and not addressing the indoor air quality issues because you're tightening up the house and not providing ventilation air and keeping all the bad stuff in there and getting sick building syndrome sometimes. So the two do go together. The, the one thing that you have to understand is that you will pay extra for the indoor air quality and indoor environmental quality. When you're when you're providing ventilation air and maybe doing supplemental dehumidification in a hot human climate, yes, that's gonna cost you extra. So you're gonna get some of your efficiency gains back, but you if you do things right, you still have a lot of efficiency left over. Okay. And you know, there's there's other places where we give our efficiency gains away in stupid ways by putting um, 40% window to floor area, for example, just because you can. You want lots of windows. On the north side. Yeah. <laughs> well. Or the south side or west side down here. Does, okay. There you go. There, yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm up north a little bit more here. Now, I'm glad. Thank you, Susan, by the way, for having me uh, bring it back around to that question because I think it's an important question. I'm working on this right now in a commercial building, Dr. Bales, and I I am bringing in the appropriate experts. I don't consider myself an expert on the issue, but I, I'm trying to explain to the building owner, and maybe, maybe you can help me with this, that if, if I have a tight building enclosure and I'm trying to get them to tighten up the building enclosure to assist with their indoor air problems, okay? But if I have a tight building enclosure, then I have more control over how I condition that building enclosure, and, and my mechanical system doesn't have to work as hard at conditioning that enclosure. And I, for some reason, what I just said is not getting through as well as I would like. Where am I missing it? What, what can I add? What would you tell a client that, you know, hey, we want to tighten up your building enclosure, but they're kind of resisting for whatever reason? Well, one, uh, one way that we do this with homes is to talk about the size of the hole. For, for ventilation, we're saying you, um, in an existing home, the, the size of the hole may be five square feet or, or more. And when you take the, the blower door number and convert that into a leakage area, it, it could be five, six, eight, ten square feet. I, I tested a house that had a leakage area of probably 12 or 13 square feet. So the, um, what you want is to reduce the size of that hole where the, the um, 
air is coming in through random leaks, possibly bringing in bad stuff. And you want to reduce that to um, maybe half a square foot or, or less. You want a, about a, a four to six inch hole in the building enclosure that brings in air from the best possible place outside that house. So you're you're reducing the overall size of the hole. But, and yes, you do have a, a hole in the house, but your overall hole is much smaller. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's, I'll try it. <laughs> That's all I can do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sometimes you do your best. Uh, anyway, it's about yeah. time for a roundup. Do you have to run right away? Can you stick around a couple extra minutes? Yeah, I can stick around. Great. Let's bring Dr. Wow on and go to a roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Well, Cliff, I did it again. I didn't get you in here often enough, so I want to give you first shot on the roundup. Anything you'd like to add or ask? Well, I think the only thing that I that I'd like to ask is how did you get a uh, top one percent profile on LinkedIn? <laughs> um, well, how did I get that? I guess because I have a, a lot of connections, first of all, and. I post a lot of content that people find interesting, and they, so they they click like on it and they share it, and and I have there's a few groups that I am fairly active in, but it's, lately it's been more sporadic. So um, I, all of that I guess causes people to click on my profile and take a look at it, and yeah, I was surprised when I got that email earlier this year. Cool. <laughs> Well, that's right, great. Well, thank you for sharing. That's great. Let's go to Dr. Weil. All right, Dieter, do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Good uh, afternoon in uh, Pittsburgh area. Good day everywhere else in the world. Good day, world. All right, Dieter, what do you got? Uh, well... I have a couple uh, of um, of uh, uh, comments. Anyway, we mentioned his name. Was the answer for today's question uh, uh, Pascal? It was. It was. Uh, okay, I thought so. Blaise Pascal. That was another one of those child prodigies who died at the tender age of 25 or something like that. Right. A brilliant man. Uh, or whatever it was. I remember that from school in Germany. Anyway, um, ventilation, I taught ventilation courses, and I designed ventilation systems. And there is one thing, and Dr. Bales mentioned that several times. If you take out air, you got to bring air uh, in to the space which you are ventilating. And there are two ways of doing it. The stupid way or the smart way. <laughs> I remember I was hired. It was a paint company, I th Kentucky. I think somewhere in Kentucky. Doesn't matter. It was a dirt place. 
and they, I designed a ventilation system for them, and I, I forgot completely. 10,000, 15,000 CFM that I collected in some hoods where they were mixing. And I said, guys, we've got to bring in 15,000 CFM. They said, oh, you don't have to worry about that. We don't have to pay you. We bring it in over there. How did they bring it in? Over the area where they were <laughs> storing pigments. Oh, jeez. <laughs> that is about the dumbest place you can put it in. <laughs> you pick it up over there and distribute it to the, through the whole factory. It's like, guys, we're not going to do that. Well, the plant manager didn't like me for a month. <laughs> Anyway, Dr. Bales mentioned that several times. Guys, you got to watch it. Um, that is the, um, uh, the pain factory where I have that. I tell you one thing, that I believe in combustion safety. I cannot, I cannot believe that it is written somewhere that when I make a cup of uh, tea, and I use my gas stove that I'm polluting the air. And I have very good uh, um, uh, data for that. I had at one time a calibrated carbon monoxide uh, uh, monitor, and there is not much more coming off. I'm, I'm, I'm burning methane that theoretically goes to CO2 and water. And there is a tight, interestingly, I thought it was much more. I had my carbon monoxide meter right over my stove, and at, at times, sometimes, I approached 1 ppm, which doesn't bother me at all, and it doesn't do anything to me. I could live in 1 ppm of carbon monoxide for the rest of my life, and nothing would be happening to me. Uh, that is that. That is the combustion safety. Uh, the humidity, Dr. Balesman mentioned that too. In fact, I have two high, three hygrometers, four hygrometers, they don't read all the same. Dr. Pierce probably knows that too. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, I am right now over 60% uh, of relative humidity in my house. Good luck. Do, and it is not bad today in Pittsburgh. Last week, it was 100 degrees and 90% relative humidity. And in my house, it was 70%. Good luck if you want to control that. That brings me to the other thing. We have a problem in the United States. We have the ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, and we have all the other uh, uh, agencies, and they said, hey, here is a good standard for ventilation and so on. Uh, the United States is a little bit larger um, uh, than Luxembourg or Liechtenstein or even the Vatican. I throw that one in. Yeah, we have yeah, five different climates in the United States, and one size does not fit at all. That is well known. Uh, Joe Stiburek, uh, who was mentioned here before, he uh, was uh, the editor of a couple of books. I said, hey, guys, you can't build the same building in Toronto that you build in, uh, in Key West, yeah. or for that matter, New Orleans. Uh, we know that today. Um, uh, what surprises me is, and I wrote that down with a question mark, uh, seven air changes per hour. Um, I basically, I think I get that in my house because my house was built in round numbers 40 years ago when nobody gave a damn about uh, 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 energy costs. And my house is made out of connected nooks and crannies. 
uh, more <laughs> it's it leaks like a sieve. Yeah, at, at that time nobody cared about it. And on the on one hand, that is quite all right. I get some fresh air in. Unfortunately, in an unwanted uh, uh, way. And I was thinking of bringing in air, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm probably going to be too lazy and uh, to do that. But I think I could bring in air, in fact, from two areas, one during the winter and one during the summer. That would be the intelligent way. Uh, I had a problem also with filtration. I wanted to put a better filter in it, but my laundry room, where the return air comes into the furnace and the blower and all of that, is too small, and uh, I needed that room, so I'm stuck with the old 99-cent filter, uh, which is all right. I don't have any allergies, no nothing. But if you want to bring in air, and Dr. Bales mentioned that too, and I was thinking about that for a long time. Do you want to bring it in at one point? No, you do not. You want it distributed through the whole house. Probably one of the best places you can put it in is that Intake, well, the exhaust or the, the intake, uh, put it in the return air. Now you push it through the return air. Now the return air hopefully goes to every place of, uh, in your house. So that is all I have right now. But there are, there are a couple of very, very interesting uh, uh, projects and problems over here. And I think we have to address them. And we are doing it today better than we did 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years ago. 50 years ago, nobody gave a damn. It's as simple as that. And one more comment. One of our listeners from last week called, uh, emailed me, and my email is weyel11 at aol.com. And he said, boy, what you were talking about was incredibly interesting. Where do you learn that stuff? And I gave him two references. Uh, one was the Siba Geige book on uh, pulmonary uh, function and testing. The other one is one of my favorite books by Ted Hatch and Paul Gross. It's called Pulmonary Deposition and Retention of Inhaled Aerosols. The book apparently is out of print, which is a, which is a shame. And um, I uh, uh, looked at it. There are 200 pages in there. And you can get two pages on one eight and a half by eleven. So uh, uh, Kinkos would have to print a hundred pages or so. If somebody is interested, for that gentleman who called me, I do it on my own. I I, I give him the book. I love that book so much. I, he doesn't have to pay for it. If there are more people who want it, then I can go to Kinkos and say, "Hey, make me ten copies," which go. is completely completely legal and everything. All right there. Right. Oh, hey, let me breathe for a moment. <laughs> All right, Dieter, always, always great to have you, um, and a pleasure. Now, Dr. Bales, before you go, is there anything you'd like to add? Because I know we're running over here a good bit, and you know, we we didn't, we just scratched the top of that ventilation debate, but I wanted to at least touch it on it and and get listeners somewhat familiar with the fact that we have this debate going on. Maybe even you could could do this for me if you don't have anything specific. Why do we have this? You know, we have these very intelligent people on both sides of this debate. Why, why can't we agree on it? Why can't we what? I'm sorry. Why can't we agree to a, oh. a, a, a some one standard? <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. Uh, building science, of course, um, is not alone in this uh, 
this issue of having people, very smart people who know a lot, not being able to agree. It happens in every single field in the world. True. And it's um, it, it takes some wading through. So if you're if you're relatively unknowledgeable in the field, you have to be careful and, and try to find somebody that you trust and figure out what is the best path. And you also, if, if you're installing um, ventilation systems, if you're an HVAC contractor or if you're a builder, building houses, these things, you need to um, monitor and, and make changes along the way. If you're a big production builder, of course, you need to hire the best minds out there to try to make sure you don't mess up because if you mess up once, it could affect a thousand homes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, that's a problem there, huh? Big issue. <laughs> you don't just have one problem, you have a thousand problems. Yep, yep. Well, anything that we missed that you'd like to add before we go? Well, I'll just uh, put in a plug for my blog, if you don't mind. Please do. Energyvanguard.com uh, is the website, and we have a, a very good blog. I write two or three articles a week, generally, about ventilation and getting ducks inside the building enclosure. That's today's article. And about cool new tools that I think, like yesterday I had an article about vent caps for duck leakage tests. So there's a lot of good stuff that we put in our blog. Yeah, I noticed that. And I, I signed up for it about a month back now. I've caught bits and pieces of it over the years. How long have you been doing that now? Uh, a little over three years now. It's uh, we. I'm about to hit my 500th article. In fact, I'll probably hit that while I'm at summer camp week after next. Great, and I look forward to meeting you there and also reading more of your blog. And for those listeners that are interested, it's energyvanguard.com, and I will put a link up on our homepage here along with this show. So this is radio. You're. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest, Dr. Allison Bales. Thank you, doctor. Look You're forward, very welcome. I enjoyed it. Look forward to talking at summer camp. And, of course, I want I to thank too. my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Way to go, Cliff. Good show today, Joe. Ah, great show. We, we enjoy these. And, of course, our thanks to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for always joining us and giving us some great comments. I want to thank... Uh, Glenn Fellman, for they're back. IE Connections is back. Good to have that uh, back up online, and folks have a great resource out there again. And, of course, I want to thank our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome. Came out good today. And most importantly, all of our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back. Oh, next week. By the way, I mixed up last week. We've got, uh, we're going to do the water activity show next week. So we'll be back next week with the folks from uh, Decagon Instruments. They're going to talk about a new instrument out for measuring water activity at surfaces. And we look forward to that show. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio.
dry your tears. I say until my peeps who passed away. No woman, no cry. No woman, no cry. This has been another IAQ Radio production.